So we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but um, wanted to flesh out a little bit more the differences and mainly the differences between, in particular, the Samatha and the Vipassana. Since these are two of the practices that um, are part of the Theravadan progression of, of practice. And um, so we're one of the first ways that I think is just good to be aware of is the whole idea of of mindfulness, the vipassana practice, which vipassana means insight, um, but the way that it's come to the West, it's been translated almost into the word mindfulness which is fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But the original meaning of the term mindfulness just means to be mindful of whatever your meditative object is. So we do actually have mindfulness in samatha and in the Brahma Viharas and in really any practice you do. Just what are we being mindful of? So in the samatha, in Vipassana, we're mindful of initially it might be the breath and then goes to an increasingly large sphere of objects of our awareness, including um, body sensations, different kinds of thoughts like the hindrances and other, other things. Um, so there's a whole lot of categories that are <coughs> eligible for our awareness to, to, as an object within Vipassana. Whereas in the Samatha, we're really mindful of the breath, as you saw during the, the lunch period. We stay with the breath throughout all of our activities. We never move to another object. So, you know, this is one of the differences is really that continuity of the object is the same one, especially on retreat, or if you were to do a home retreat or that kind of thing. Um, from the minute we get up to the minute we go to sleep. It's one object. And this is part of what really allows her that settling and that resting that is different within the Samatha practice than it is with Vipassana. Another is what is being cultivated. So we talked about in the Samatha practice, what's being cultivated is a disinterest, in, in a way, in our story, in our normal habits of mind and the things that pull us away and distract us that we're identified with. Because that's really what happens when something pulls us away from the breath and we get identified with it, then all of a sudden we're lost in thought. We can have it pull us away, but if we're not identified and we come back, then that shows a real, you know, there's not much identification that's then happened with the object. So, um, the turning away and the cultivating of the disinterest is what's building that muscle of concentration. That's mainly the thing that we're, well, that's one of the things I'll say that we're cultivating in the Samatha practice. In Vipassana, what we're cultivating is an ability to be with whatever's happening. So we're not turning away really from anything. I mean, at the beginning of Vipassana, you may come back to the breath more in a way that's more directed. But over time with Vipassana, it becomes just whatever is the contents of, of awareness. And we um, are cultivating, or in that practice, we're building the muscle of whatever's there, whether it's a really enjoyable emotion or whether it's a pain 
we're not either attracted, so we're not sort of grabbing onto things, and we're also not pushing things away. So this is important too, and this is one of the main things that's being cultivated in Vipassana is a kind of equanimity with whatever phenomenon is arising in our awareness. So we're in a way kind of immersing ourselves in our experience in a way that's unmediated and that allows for um, for increasing levels of non-identification with whatever our experience is. So these are both important things, but they're not the same thing. So you can see that they're, they're cultivating something that's, that's different, each of which has its own value. And we also talked about not investigating. So this is one of the big differences where with the samatha, you can just enjoy the fact if you're with the breath, you can just enjoy resting there. You know, this is where sometimes people will start investigating because it's a habit. And when we actually are with the breath and we can just relax into it, this really allows for the deepening of the serenity aspect of the practice. So, you know, we can enjoy just being with the object and not having to do much at times. Um, so in the, in the Samatha, because we're, like, we'll find this with people who've done the practice for, you know, a longer period of time or on retreat, that people will start to see that a, a thought pattern comes up, and there's a moment, if our concentration is high enough, when we can either, like, get identified with that and then follow that thought, or what we call the off-ramp where you can see it coming up, and instead of going to that thought, we stay with the breath. You know, it's like there's two places, there's a fork in the road there. And when we don't allow our awareness, when there's a sense of um, the concentration being strong enough, and also there kind of becomes a momentum in the practice where we just don't identify and we stay with the breath, that's really what we're calling the software upgrade. We're now when, you know, when we're out in life and something can come up that maybe isn't, um, it's not as close to our deeper nature as what would be possible. Like, I mean, I was just reading an article, maybe some of you who live in Marin County saw this, of these two men, one was 70, one was 72, got into a road rage incident, and the one shot the other, literally. I mean... This happened in Marin County like six months ago. I couldn't believe it. One of the, one of the men was a doctor and one was a CEO. So Yeah, and they were 70 and 72 singers. years old. No criminal record. What happened? I mean, that's a level. I mean, and the, the thing that led to this on both sides was so minor that, you know, this is an extreme example I'm giving, but we all do it you know, where something happens in our experience and we get really identified and we're so identified in it, we just can't get out of that sort of compulsive um, hurting ourselves. That's really what we're doing. I mean, these two men hurt themselves and at any moment they could have stopped and not carried that to the point where one was ramming the other's garage door with his car and the other was going inside and getting a gun. You know, so this is the this is the potential to just not go there so that I mean, 
no one here would do that, I don't think. Um, but what about when something happens that does trigger us? You know, we've all, and as long as we have any shred of a personality up to very high stages of enlightenment, we're going to still have some triggers there that can get us hooked. And so this is really the off-ramp that we're talking about of having the possibility of, um, at that moment, not engaging in that. So that's the kind of thing that we're deconditioning. Um, also, we talk about the in the Samatha practice, we're really, in a way, it's a practice where we're, we're t- orienting toward the mysterious and the formless, because like the jhanas, we won't get into all this, but there's the form jhanas, which is the first through fourth jhana, and then there's the formless or immaterial jhanas, which are jhana five, six, seven, eight. So even though, you know, there's very few people who will experience the formless jhanas, we're orienting our consciousness toward that, toward something that is immaterial, that we can know with our, with our own experience. And so we're kind of penetrating that mystery in a different way with the laser beam. This is what the laser beam is doing that is our awareness, is penetrating into that mystery where we can have direct experiences of what we are beyond form. That's what we're pointing towards. In Vipassana, because it's more like we're permeating our experience directly in reality, in the material, so there's a whole part of Vipassana that's about materiality, body scans, um, you know, direct sensate experience, things like that. And then there's another part that is about our mentality, what's going on in our thinking, what's going on in our emotions. Um, So these are two, again, these are two different things. In Vipassana, we're really aiming towards understanding those at such a fundamental level of reality that our attachments just open up. So that's important too, but they're, they're not the same. They're different things that we're really cultivating. And like with the samatha, so we're orienting toward the mystery. There's, as we go up through that rank of all the jhanas, um, there is a mystery that is really completely unconditioned. And again, even if one doesn't experience that, the practice is aiming there. And this is the mystery we talked about in, when we first started this morning of, you know, where does this consciousness that now is me come from? I mean, we've got this, the aggregates, but that doesn't explain my experience right in this moment. You know, there's a way where we can know it as a mystery that really has to do with our breath ultimately. How do we know when somebody is dead? They're not breathing anymore. So there's a whole mystery having to do with the breath. We don't need to contemplate, but just the fact that we're, this is where we're orienting with the practice is to know this mystery of life and death and that which manifests all of what we see and experience. It is extremely mysterious. So that's really what we're, um, what we're orienting towards in this practice. Uh, We talked about purification of mind. Really, the mind stream is what we're working with directly in the Samatha. In the Vipassana, it's purification of view. So to know 
um, the three characteristics of existence. We'll talk about that later and how that's a certain kind of wisdom that can arise. Um, and so the two really complement each other. And even though a lot of times they're taught separately, like when we teach a Samatha retreat, we do use Vipassana kind of as needed when people are really within the hindrances and in their, their in a way, penetrating the personality structure really deeply, that's the time to gain some a deeper understanding of what's going on there. So potentially that structure can drop away, can be digested more than was possible, and then what's left is our deeper nature. So this is, just gives you a sense of how the two are similar, how they're different, and how they can work together in a way that is really what the Buddha was describing when you look at the suttas. He was describing this combination of practice over and over and over again. So uh, we've talked about as, as you bring your awareness to the breath, we're wanting to let it rest there and have that develop. And you talked about the development of that practice through the different levels of concentration. So what's really getting in the way? And one of the ways in Buddhism we frame what gets in the way is we call, it, we call them the hindrances. And for those that don't know, I'll mention what they are and those that could help, uh, could use a reminder. There's five hindrances. Desire, so it's the wanting quality that we have. And that works either whatever we don't have, we want, or whatever we do have, and we want more of it. So both of those are in desire. Ill will, aversion. This is the pushing away what we view as being unwelcome, unwanted. If I can only get these things away from me, everything's going to be just fine. So, so it's a kind of rejecting energy. Sloth and torpor, and that's the that also leads to the sleepiness, but... Sloth and torpor is just that quality where people will, will identify themselves as just feeling like a blob or a, this in, inert mass that they can't quite get movement with. So it's that kind of quality, the real sluggishness. Restlessness and remorse. So the restlessness often comes from too much energy or can, but it's the fidgety quality that people can have in meditation in life. And the remorse is really the remembering of past actions and wishing they had been done differently or wishing people had treated you differently. So it's that, that sort of line of thinking. And then the fifth is doubt. And I want to take just a minute to talk about doubt because doubt is one that is, I would say that everyone is affected by doubt at different points. And in Buddhism, we look at, there's three kinds of doubt. There's doubt in the, the teachings or teachers excuse me, teachers, there's doubt in the teaching or the practices, and then doubt in yourself or your practice. And even though people can have the first two, the most common is doubt in yourself. And that's really the idea that, well, I think these other people can all do it, but I, I can't. There's some fundamental flaw in me that prevents this from happening. And doubt will, will pretty much slow down any meditation practice. And one of the ways that doubt comes up is through a kind of um, ambivalence. And part of the ambivalence shows up where there's a certain, say, a meditative result or a quality we, we want. At the same time, there's an equal fear we're not going to get it. So it creates this, this 
tension that gives rise to doubt. So um, it's just recognizing these are part of our, our psychology, they're part of our structuring. And as Tina said, with the concentration, these not only come up, but we learn to turn away and they do relax, they do uh, temporarily be suspended. And one of the ways we talk about this in terms of the samatha, the concentration practices, particularly on retreat, is we talk about a surf zone metaphor. And this metaphor started for us in that Tina was, uh, maybe still is, a certified scuba diver. And, and the scuba divers you've seen here in California will often do beach dives. They'll get on all the gear and then they'll, you'll see them walking backwards into the ocean. And so we thought, well, this is a, a perfect metaphor for what it's like to be on a concentration retreat. Because you have sort of all the things you're doing, you know, I'm focusing here and I'm not doing this and I'm doing that. And, but you're walking sort of backwards in a way you don't quite know what's coming. You know, there's that, uh, that quality. And so we found that as people get started on the retreat, the first, the first waves, those ankle waves, are just the, the, the room, the environment. Oh, it's, it's too hot in here. It's too cold. I've got the wrong cushion. I should have worn different uh, socks. You know, it's all these little, little things. And so once those all get resolved at some point, either through changing or through letting go, we move deeper into the water. And now we're at the knee-high water. And the knee-high water is usually things about our own patterning that's happening. Um, and, and this can show up, uh, the person next to me, they breathe way too heavy. <laughs> you know, it's just like no, nobody in the room. And, and you, can, you can tell when this is coming up because people come in interviews. Everybody in the room can't meditate because that person's breathing too loud. <laughs> so the quality is everybody agrees with you. That, that's how you tell that's coming up. So you have a lot of those come up for a while, and after a while, again, with more concentration, they're settling and moving out. And at some point along the way, the different hindrances come up. And not everybody has all five in a really strong way, but everyone has a kind of combination. There's certain ones, like you might be more of a desire type than an aversion type, or vice versa. But pretty much everybody has all of them. And you get to see this, as we're saying, as you concentrate you see them again and again and again. I wonder what's for lunch today. I really like when they have this to eat and, you know, not that. Uh, I wonder if I can sleep, take a nice nap this afternoon. And you start so sort of accumulating the, the desires and stacking them up. And you start seeing, oh, I'm a desire type. Okay, well, I get this. So, again, with concentration, these settle down. And at some point, uh, most everyone moves into what Tina talked about as the deep access concentration and in our metaphor, this is getting out beyond where the waves are breaking, which is the surf zone, and out to the deep water. And that's where people collect and then the deep dive is possible, meaning concentration deeper into access and absorption jhana is available. So we use that as a metaphor. Uh, and to be clear also, as soon as we're on the beach and moving into the water, even engaging with those ankle waves, that is purification of mind. Every time you turn back, you choose to come back to the breath over whatever else is going on, that there's a little bit of purification of mind happening. There's a little bit of lessening of allegiance to whatever that those pulls are within your structure. So it continues all the way out to the deep water. So it's just, you know, you, you are getting benefits. And then people will feel like, well, tell me at the deep water, there's no purification of mind. This isn't worth it. Uh, but the whole journey is really is really worth it. It's just more pleasurable in the deep water. There's no question about that. So working with the hindrances, one of the 
main ways we work with it is, as we mentioned, coming back to the breath and learning to rest with the breath. We sometimes will talk on retreat as people can have such affection for the Anapana region, the breath in this region, that Tina and I have a term we've used in our book called the love affair with the object. And it will, there will just be so much connection and this quality of affection. And really people say, I just, I love my breath. And it's just this great quality that happens. Uh, it's just so intimate and it's so life-giving that people can really have that quality there. And with the resting, I mentioned earlier, there's a relaxation that happens. There's a softening. And this helps both with, again, our, our structuring, our personality <laughs> patterning, because there's a softness that happens. And it allows things to arise that are out of view or unknown to us. And that's where some of these territories, the jhana factors and other things, are, are under the surface that we can't normally experience or see. So it's really just staying with the breath, and understanding that we're going to have the hindrances come up. And our first line of strategy is always to turn back to the breath and see if we can not get snagged by the hindrances. Uh, and when we, you are snagged or it's snagged sufficiently, then on retreat, as Tina said, we will employ Vipassana very specifically to turn and address whatever is coming up. And we address it long enough so that there is a relaxing and then once somebody can come back to the breath, then that's as far as we use the vipassana. And I mentioned before that people come with lots of meditative experience, and we'll get a, sometimes people who will want to do some other practice. So I'm really good at this practice, and I think if I can just really get super deep in that one, then I can somehow, you know, turn real quick to this the breath here at the Anapana region. And ultimately, what they're saying is they'd like to parachute over the surf zone. I'd like to land in the deep water, please, is the uh, intent. And unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And we've just found that it really has to, it has a, its own integrity and has to really build from the beach all the way through your surf zone out to the deep water. That's how the purification of mind develops and the settled, concentrated energy comes about. I guess one last comment I'll make. We were talking with Guy Armstrong, who teaches here at one point about the differences between Samatha and Vipassana. And he, he's practiced with our teacher, the Saito. And in fact, he ordained with the Saito in Burma, is my recollection. Mm -hmm. And Guy said that he views it where if you're doing Vipassana practice, it's like going down a hill, walking down a hill. And you can see where the objects are, and you can just step out of the way and walk around them. And he said the Samatha is like the same hill, but it's covered in ice. And you're coming down the hill on ice skates where you can sometimes see what's coming. You can try and get out of the way, but, but a lot of times you're just going to run direct, directly into it. So he said because of the concentration, you can't always uh, get around or escape what's coming up as your hindrances. So it was an interesting way to hold the differences between the two in that respect. So the, the hindrances are are going to be part of the of any practice. So just to um, say once again that this is normal, this is to be expected, and this is really where that building of the muscle happens. And there may be times when there aren't hindrances. And we'll talk about as the hindrances start decreasing in a little bit, we'll talk about well, what, what starts increasing. This is where that purification of mind is actually happening and we may start coming in contact with some other things.
But the, the hindrances really, you know, in some ways we like to think of it that there's a way where our deeper nature, the fact that hindrances are happening, it's, we could sort of see it as the compassion of being, of our deeper nature, of saying, you're blocked, you know, and there's more possible. So when the hindrances aren't there, you know, so there's a way of kind of holding the hindrances instead of thinking that something is wrong to just understand that this is really a way that what's deeper in you than the hindrances is calling you to stay with it until they can subside more. So there's a couple of particular kinds of hindrances we wanted to just address. We, we will do another sitting today. And everything Stephen said really applies to daily practice too. It's not just on retreat. In daily practice, you're going to have hindrances. And there may be times when you don't have hindrances. So it's a chance to just see what are your patterns that come up and to stay with it and cultivate, build that muscle of turning away. So sleep and sleepiness can be one of them. And with this practice, one of the things that's really important to understand about that particular hindrance is that um, as our concentration deepens, for most people, there will be a time, or for a lot of people, there will be a time when the concentration actually gets stronger than your energy level. Because a lot of people are just, you know, a lot of us are sort of chronically sleep-deprived. And we see this on retreat. Like on our retreats, the first couple of days we'll tell people, take naps. If you're falling asleep, go and take a nap. Don't come and sit in the hall and take and, and sleep and, you know, be sleeping in the hall or forcing yourself, make sure you're rested. And then if it still continues, then it's something beyond just needing more sleep. Then it's an actual hindrance pattern of kind of going unconscious. So um, so what do we do about sleepiness either here today or at home when you're practicing or on retreat? It's really, there are some things we can do just to get through that stage. Um, so the first is if you're actually sleep trying, you know, if you're starting to sleep while you're meditating, you're not actually meditating. So just to be really honest with yourself that I'm sleeping and this, this isn't actually doing anything. This isn't really doing anything to my conscious. I might need to sleep. So that might be something that's important, but it's not actually meditation. So standing up is a good thing that one can do. And a lot of times people feel really self-conscious doing it, but it's extremely skillful because it's, it's pretty hard to fall asleep while you're standing up. So if when we do the sitting later today, you know, it's going to be the last sitting of the day and it's one where a lot of sleepiness can happen, feel free to just stand up if you want to. And just, you know, in this practice, even though it's a practice where we settle, it's fine to just, you know, real slowly just stand up. You won't bother your neighbor. And then when it's, you're done, just sit back down. You know, it's, it's a really easy thing to do, and it's going to help your practice. Um, also, opening our eyes. Just not like opening them all the way, but just, you know, you don't even have to move your head. You can just open your eyes, let some light in. Sometimes just the energy from having some light come in is enough, and then after a minute or something, you can just close your eyes again. So this is another way to just have a little bit more energy if you're sleepy. Also, like here or on retreat, to, to walk more briskly in between sittings. 
is a way, you know, this isn't, the walking we do in the Samatha practice doesn't necessarily have to be the slow walking that we do in Vipassana. So you can go out and just pick your energy up a little bit. And also to maybe have your posture a little bit more alert and to bring just a little bit more effort to the meditation. These are all things that can help with sleepiness. So, um, so when the energy and the, when the concentration gets stronger than the energy and these are out of balance, this is the thing that's, well, this can happen in Vipassana, but it, it happens a lot more doing concentration practice, is called sinking mind. And um, what happens is it can actually be a really kind of pleasant, dreamy state And we've had actually a surprising number of people who've come on longer retreats with us who thought maybe they had been experiencing jhana find out that it was actually sinking mind because because it's really pleasant. I mean, it's pleasant and there aren't a lot of thoughts. So this is just something, whether this happens in Vipassana too, where having the energy in balance, this gets into the five factors of enlightenment. We have a whole talk on that that I think we might... We might have posted that one. Anyway, it's one of the sort of core teachings of the Buddha about balancing a number of things. But one of the things we balance is our concentration and our energy. The energy is what goes into the laser beam. So if we don't have enough energy, but we have too much concentration, it's like the mind's unified enough so that we're not just going off into a lot of thoughts, but there's no oomph behind it. And so it's like it just kind of goes off a cliff, you know, but you're not thinking. So this is just something to be aware of in concentration practice. I mean, I guess it's better than sitting there thinking the whole time because at least there's not um, a sense of just being lost in thought. But there's a way where with just a little bit more of some of the things I just mentioned, we can bring the energy and then the concentration can really start deepening in a way that's... um, uh, It has more balance and more sustainability. One, one aspect, one way to recognize this, the sinking mind is, as Tina said, it's usually one where there's not much thinking, but what you can notice is it's kind of sluggish and it's dull. There's not much energy. Mm-hmm. So it's really a kind of a flat, energyless experience, even though it's not uncomfortable. It's, it it's might even dreamy. be kind, kind yeah. of a druzy sort of experience. You're not quite asleep, but you're definitely in the <laughs> flat uh, no energy sort of experience where with your if you're progressing in this practice there's going to be the balance of concentration and energy so there'll be the concentration maybe not much thinking but it'll be bright it'll have a little energy to it right. so that's one way to distinguish if you're moving towards thinking mind or towards concentration and like i whenever i do retreat even when we teach we we're sitting like six hours so when we teach retreats we're in sitting with the yogis you know a fair amount in addition to the interviews, and I will always get sinking mind at some point. And I just know that I'm, this is a phase of the practice, and I just need to work until it's balanced, and then, you know. So it's it's just something, if the concentration starts developing, it's a real common thing to have happen. Okay, so we've talked about purification of mind some, and now we want to really go into more what is it, What's really happening in this practice as the mind stream, our consciousness is being purified? What, what is that? 
And earlier we talked about the two sides of purification of mind being the transformational and the transcendent. And these are really, you know, two sides of one coin of purification of mind. So the transformation, this is really where our personality structure, the ways that we identify and suffer, really, um, because of that, uh, are transformed and digested so that we're kind of updating that software program. This is with the transformation side. The transcendent side is when we're actually, we've broken through the hindrance patterns and we're coming in contact with our true nature. And we're starting to have real tastes of that mystery of what we are. That's the transcendent side. So the, at that point, the personality has been transcended, and we're starting to taste what we really are and a truth that's, you know, part of that mystery. So there are different stages on both sides of these, and they, they kind of end up coming to the same place. So I'll just go through those so you can get a sense of what's happening. And you may recognize some of these from your own practice. So in tr- transformation, we start out and we're completely identified with whatever's happening. Like, like the men who got into the road rage incident. They were just so identified with it that it was just the truth, and they just couldn't, you know, couldn't get out of it. And we all do this to you know, to a lesser extent, but uh, in ways that we suffer. This is really, you know, the first noble truth that life is always going to be unsatisfactory. But we're completely identified with that and have to, to the point where there's no separation all between what's arising in our experience and our sense of what we are beyond that. Then we start seeing the patterns. So this is where, like in your daily practice or on retreat, you can start seeing that maybe there's some patterns that are really repetitive that are just your configuration. And all of these things have, have gotten there for reasons. When, when we're children, we adapt to our environment in a way that like certain things get rewarded in our environment and other things don't. And those become our personality structures. So it's not to make them wrong, but um, just to say that we can start seeing those as patterns rather than just as the truth. We kind of start getting some separation there. And then we start seeing the pattern maybe as something that isn't really me. It's just a pattern. It's habits of behavior, habits of mind. But we start getting more and more space from them where we maybe start turning away. We talked about the off-ramp. And the patterns start diminishing, so they're not as compulsive. So that when the pattern starts coming up, we have actually, there's the possibility of not becoming identified and going with that pattern. So like, I'll take a very minor, like driving example. Maybe something, somebody does do something to us when we're driving and almost causes an accident. Well, we might think, oh, that was really stupid. You know, maybe we even honk a little bit or something. Well, that could go on for five or 10 minutes to where whenever we get at our destination, we have to tell somebody what happened on the way there, you know, and we might be, it might be true. We might even be justified in what we're saying, but what's happened to us in between when that happened, when we got to the destination. So what happens is that we start to, that cycle gets shorter and shorter to where maybe, okay, it still is startling, 
when it happens, but we can just go, well, who knows what's happening with them? And it's gone. You know, it doesn't, the, the identification with it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller to where we can turn away and not cause ourselves to suffer. Because who's suffering in that case? It's not the other person. We're the ones that are suffering. So we start having a lot more freedom to where that doesn't have to continue because we're not identified with it. It's not personal that this happened. And then ultimately, the pattern can be dropped. And we have seen this, we've experienced it, but we've seen it in lots and lots of our students where whole chunks of patterning that cause suffering can just be dropped and not come back ever. So this is the the potential for transformation. Then with transcendent, so this is really having direct contact with with true nature. And, you know, the Buddha talked about the practice. Don't take my word for it, but experience it for yourself. Because he knew that if people practiced enough, they would start knowing for, for themselves what he was talking about. So we start out in this way where we basically have no contact with true nature, with our true nature, which is true of the the majority of humanity, unfortunately. Then we start getting interested, you know? You start going to events, start trying some different meditations, getting interested, getting curious, doing some reading, going to talks. Then maybe there's some contact where it's like, wow, I'm really starting to feel that there's more to me than just this life and this body and going through my day doing work and paying bills and all of these other things. And then as we get deeper and deeper to um, potentially seeing that we aren't actually the personality that what we are is something else, sometimes fear can come up where it starts getting really real that what the Buddha said was actually true about everybody, not just about the Buddha, but about me. And that's actually, it's a really important time in the practice because we can tell there's something really important that's changing, that something fundamental is actually changing in us. And then there can be more contact and then some real sweetness in really starting to relax. Having that personality structure relax, that can start happening and we can start really, there can be a natural surrender that starts taking place to that mystery where the ego isn't in charge anymore. And that's what we call the thinning of the me. So this is really where that structure that we've known as what we are we start seeing through that and knowing that there's something else. Knowing it not because somebody's told us, because, but because we've actually started experiencing it. So the word jhana, we did some research again when we first started teaching. And the word, um, Bhante G points to the fact that the word comes from uh, a Pali word, word called japeti. That means burning up. And this is part of what's happening in this practice is that the hindrances and these structures of the personality that have, is how we've known ourselves, they start actually getting burned up to where they may not keep coming back. 
Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about purification of mind as being a tilling of the soil. So, you know, this is part of why the Buddha really talked about having, you know, the mind stream and doing the work to to till the soil of our awareness so that other, you know, so that there can be a growth in our practice. I mean, if you try to throw the seeds of your practice on hard soil, it's going to be really difficult for anything to grow there. So part of what we're doing in this process is really we're tenderizing our consciousness so that something new can be grown out of it. Another way to know what's happening with our own practice is in Buddhism, it's called the paramis, which are the perfections. So I won't go through a list of what they are, but um, we can see in our behavior, am, am I changing at all? Do the people around me, my friends or significant others in my life, my family members, do they see that anything's different? Do I feel different inside? Am I less reactive? We can start seeing that purification of mind is happening because we're actually changing in ways that are better for the world and also better for us. We aren't suffering as much. And this really brings us to, we talked about the the hindrances. it is really possible doing this practice, not in daily practice, but on even a not-that-long retreat. Well, maybe for a lot of people it would be long, but two weeks. We're not saying a two-month retreat. On a two-week retreat, to be free of the hindrances. So imagine that, to be able to meditate for some period of time with no hindrances. And granted, this is a function of the concentration, but one of the definitions of enlightenment is the absence of hindrances. So when you taste that for yourself, even if it's temporary, it's a taste of enlightenment. And that really, it's something that's extremely compelling because, again, then we know this is true for me. This isn't just other people. This is an experience that I've had of having some freedom from that so I know what's possible. It's really, um, it's really um, compelling. And this is why a lot of times people start doing the practice and they want to do more of it because we can see that there is that capacity within our own awareness. And then the last way we can think of purification of mind as the hindrances start dropping, what's called the jhana factors start arising. They get replaced by the jhana factors. And um, so Stephen will talk some about what the jhana factors are. And I'll start off by telling you that the term jhana factor isn't the best term, unfortunately, (laughs) uh, because the jhana factors are true or can be true in any meditation. If you recall, we talked about concentration. There was momentary concentration, access concentration, and then absorption or jhana. And every meditation has the momentary and has the potential for access concentration. And the jhana factors begin to arise in the access concentration. So Tina's experienced here doing Vipassana meditation. She said jhana factors arise. When I did Zen practice, I had the same thing. So even though neither one of those would practices would lead to absorption, the jhana factors can arise. So just to understand, just because they're, they're present doesn't mean that jhana is there, okay? 
So th there's five jhana factors, and we'll give I'll give you first the Pali names and then the usual translation. The, fir the first jhana factor is vitaka, and vitaka is normally translated as something like applied attention or applied awareness. And this is, you, you've already done this. This is the returning to the breath again and again. That's really, in many ways, the only job we have in the, in the concentration practice is just coming back to the breath again and again. And once, the, once the, the awareness begins to stay with the breath, once there's a resting or a continuity, then what can happen is the next jhana factor of vichara can arise. And vichara is sustained awareness or sustained attention. That just means the awareness is staying with the breath for some period of time. It could be fairly short, but it's more than just the constant application that the vitaka is. And we tend to use the Pali words simply because the English translations don't quite capture it exactly. And so we find for ourselves and our students, it makes the language a little bit better because it gives a wider range of experience available. So we've got, again, vitaka, applied attention, awareness, vichara, sustained. That's the continuity. That's where when you got up to go uh, walk or go eat a restroom, staying with the object, when, when that starts developing, that becomes more and more possible. So you're walking, you can stay with the breath, the awareness on the breath. That's where the continuity starts developing, which is a very important part of the practice. Then the third jhana factor, PT. PT is translated normally as joy, but there's really a kind of a range of experience in PT where the joy is just a sort of happy body feeling, very, very pleasant, and it has a range up to rapture. And the rapture is, has a lot of energy to it. So it isn't just a kind of a pleasant, happy feeling. It actually is a very happy, energetic sort of experience in the body where people sometimes can get little, little movements or things like this. And so on, the, on retreats, it can happen sometimes, but we just tell people this is the range it goes in. So if people have a, a, a more energetic experience, we can normalize that. But for most people, it's a real, just a kind of a general happiness in their body. Uh, being, and again, they've got the continuity before the PT would really be showing up. And the fourth jhana factor is sukha. And sukha is normally translated as bliss. But it's sort of a um, bliss happiness. And the difference between piti and sukha, piti is body. So it's from the neck down. And sukha is head only. So it's a kind of happiness, pleasantness in the head. Often people will describe it as being kind of effervescent, bubbly feeling, um, like a carbonated beverage, you know, that sort of bubbliness that when you open the bottle, it's that kind of a mental feeling. And even though these are made of the same substance, the fact that they're in different locations gives them a different felt scent, felt quality. And then the final, the fifth jhana factor is ekagata, which is normally translated as one-pointedness. So Tina was talking about that light going down to the laser. Well, this is that, in part, that dialing down, and it's a, it's a real uh, contact with the breath in a way that you really would have to go to a lot of effort to not be on the breath, which today sounds pretty remarkable, but it actually is what can happen. And that goes to a range where we sometimes talk about it as a lock-on, where it feels it just is so established on the breath 
that you almost couldn't get off the breath if you wanted to. The awareness is so clearly and distinctly connected to the breath. So imagine that. It's a pretty, pretty re remarkable feeling. And so for first jhana to arise, all five of the jhana factors have to be present, and they are usually present in a really high degree. So if you think about it like the, you know, you, you can see the, some of the stereos, they have those little lines that go up and down to show you what's happening on different levels. And it's kind of like that, where it, it between the, the start of the, the beach and out to the deep water of the surf zone, once they get established, they'll, they'll be fluctuating. And at some point, going toward the deep water, going deeper into access concentration, they all start moving up into a higher and higher level. And once they're at a high enough level, then jhana can arise. And we frame it that way, not that someone attains or gets jhana, because it isn't actually a possession. It's really where our awareness matches, enters, merges with uh, first jhana, with the, that consciousness, that awareness. So it's a very different kind of experience. And so by saying it arising, that is, that's the felt sense of it, that it just it, it happens. It's not something we do, not something we can create or... Uh, other than being with the breath, that's the only way we can facilitate that. And to be clear, the, the jhana factors, the, particularly the joy, happiness, bliss, they're not emotions. Emotions are the province of personality. These are qualities that arise from your deeper nature, from your concentration. So we can't produce these. It isn't like we can visualize. It isn't like we can read a Hallmark card or listen to really beautiful music. Or I told Tina it was true. I could just give her a basket of puppies and she would have the genre factors arise. Okay. <laughs> and it, it doesn't work that way. It's the, the, these are a product of the concentration, right? So being with the breath more and more, these begin to arise from your depths. And there are some presentations of, of, of jhana practice where people are instructed to, once the jhana factors are present, to, to move their awareness from the breath to the jhana factor. And in this tradition, we, we never do that. Because if you think about it, the reason the jhana factors are arising is because you're focusing on the breath very intently. So if you then take your awareness off the breath and turn it to a feeling of joy in the body, for example, you're no longer have your awareness with your breath. So if you're trying to boil, the, boil that pot of water, you're taking the water off the heat and taking the lid off to look at the steam. It's not going to continue. It's going to have to dissipate. So this is why we never take it as an object uh, in the progression of jhana. Did you want to just mention the nimitta just briefly? Yeah. There's a phenomenon in the progression of this practice called the nimitta that you may have heard of. And the nimitta is a, uh, a brightness. We talked about the difference between concentration and sinking mind as a brightness and energy. Well, a as you're getting concentrated, there's a natural brightness of the mind that will be experienced. And it can be experienced early on with some, some light activity. <laughs> there's just a lot of brightness and maybe even seeing sort of lights, shooting stars sort of things in your meditation. And this is early on telling you you're doing it right, you're concentrating. And ultimately, this progresses to the point that this light begins showing up. And it's in your, in your mind's eye. When we did our retreat with the Saida, we would go into the meditation hall, and probably out of whatever we had, 30 or 40 people, 
almost everybody had on either sleep masks or they had blankets over their heads entirely. <laughs> and we went to the side aisle and we said, well, what are they doing? And he said, they're trying to see the nimitta. <laughs> we said, well, side aisle, you don't see it with your eyes. He said, I know, but they just keep doing it. <laughs> so it's the mind's eye. I mean, people, we, we tell, people, people come into interview and they'll say, oh, you know, my eyes are really hurting. Well, we're sitting with our eyes closed, right? So it's like, what can make your eyes hurt? Looking for the nimitta. So that, that's how we catch that one. But so just relax a, your eyes. They're not really doing anything. Yeah, it's a soft eye because it's in the mind's eye. But the, the nimitta starts where, again, it sort of lights, and then at some point it begins more, more light show. So, um, or it can know. be like a wall where it's just there's a brightness yeah. overall in the mind. And Some people have that. There's a whole set of stages that we won't get into since this is a day long. But, but, but ultimately, um, it, it, yeah. as the concentration deepens and the jhana factors increase, the nimitta will, will appear and be and stay. And it's just this sort of disk of light. Um, and eventually that becomes the reason we do the breath, uh, watch the breath here in the Anapana region, is because for jhana to progress in this tradition, the nimitta... Nimitta comes in and merges with the breath here. So you see, if we were following inside the body, it couldn't merge. And when it merges, that's, that's the precedent to first jhana arising. Mm -hmm. So that's why it's important. And that's where the nimitta fits into all of this. Right. And this is part of the whole location. Because if it was here, then that progression would, be, would not be happening. And also, well, anyway, that, that's enough on that probably. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this just gives you a sense of some of the potential of the practice. There's more things beyond that, but you know, even just the taste of the hindrances dropping and the jhana factors increasing and having some freedom in our experience from the hindrances and to be in contact with our deeper nature in this way is really um, it's a really profound potential in the practice. And this is before John has even arisen. So there's a lot that can really, um, that can happen that really gives us a taste of what's possible and to know that it's possible for, for us. And really, I would say, I'm, I, you know, to have the jhana factors arise strongly and the hindrances drop does take retreat, but it doesn't take two months. We have this happen to a, a large number of people on our two-week retreat. So just to give you a sense of kind of what's, what's possible, I mean, we never know for any individual what's going to happen, but there's a whole range of possibilities that don't even include jhana that are really um, can be very profound in one's practice. And even, even things, for a lot of people, things like the, having the experience of internal silence, yeah. having the jhana factors come up where the hindrances either recede or fade completely, those can be revolutionary experiences to just really have that as part of your experience. This is something that I have a taste of. I don't have to believe anybody about it. I don't have to read any books about it. I know it's true in my experience. Right. So it really ends up becoming, and it becomes part of your new self-definition. So it becomes really an important part of the practice to have these experiences and have them validated and incorporated so you know what's happening for yourself. So one of the, one of the I guess we could call it one of the dangers of this practice 
one of the um, pitfalls to really look for and to be aware of is the potential for striving. So we're gonna, I'm gonna talk some about striving and surrender and spiritual materialism, which is just if one is going to do this practice, especially do it intensively, um, this is something that has to be worked with at some point. So this practice, I don't think we mentioned this, but um, until really recently, really until Pauxido started including this as, in his progression, part of the practice for everybody. I mean, he starts everybody doing the Anapanasati with the potential of the jhanas. That's where he starts everyone. He doesn't start people with Vipassana, which is actually what the Buddha did. If you read his progression, this is really where the Buddha started people. Um, But up until that time, this practice was really reserved just for um, monastics, who'd already were fairly far along in their practice. So, you know, how did that happen that the practice was basically um, hidden away for so long? I mean, we're so fortunate that we have access to it. And um, so there's a few reasons why and a few unskillful ways of orienting to the practice that we just want to call out because at some point pretty much almost everybody deals with these in doing this practice. So the the first um, reason why the practice wasn't really taught widely was that there was a thought that lay people couldn't do it, and especially that women lay people couldn't do it, female lay people. So um, that's all been kind of just blown out of the water in the last, you know, 20 or 30 years. But there was a thought that that was true, and it just has turned out that it isn't. There was also a fear that people would get into striving knowing that there are attainments in this practice. And like when we started teaching it, people already knew about the jhanas. We couldn't really come and just say this is concentration meditation and just keep it all secret. Everybody already knew. So we've had to really figure out how to work with people skillfully who, um, you know, even for the best even coming at it with the best intentions, we find that almost everybody at some point gets into striving. And so this is part of why it wasn't why it wasn't taught was a fear that people would just do a lot of striving. And and that is actually, you know, in doing this practice, there's a whole um, well, we'll talk about wholesome desire in a minute, but there's an unwholesome desire that can be part of it that leads to striving, and this was part of the concern. Um, There was concern that people might get somehow addicted to the practice and that to 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 the bliss states, you know, that are possible with it and not want to go on to other practices. And so that was, again, a thinking that if somebody's far enough along, that won't happen. And then the last... um, Reason, which isn't so prevalent in the West, but in Asia, even today, this is extremely prevalent, especially in places like Burma and I guess Thailand also, mm-hmm. is that if you if you read the texts and especially the Vasudhimaga, it's the concentration practices that are used to cultivate supernormal powers. So there was a thought that people would somehow cultivate those and then abuse them, and. Um, 
So it was only taught after stream entry, after people had attained the first, first stage of enlightenment. And these are all reasons why that was done. So, I mean, this is really where the way we teach this practice is such that if one's coming to it just for sort of the, the merit badge of having gotten jhana or some kind of notch in the belt or whatever, it's, well, first of all, it's less likely to actually happen because there's an unwholesome desire that's kind of, you know, behind the practice. So this is really where orienting towards purification of mind and the fact that this is a present moment practice So if we're always thinking, if we're doing it with a sort of toppling into the future, that's taking us really out of the present moment. So this is really where seeing that each of us has our own unfoldment in our journey and that what's driving something like that is it's the ego. And we can't really know our own unfoldment. There's a whole um, movement behind our unfoldment as a being that we that is mysterious that we can't know. And this is really where the surrender component of the practice is to really show up, to do the best we possibly can, to be as present as we possibly can, and then to allow for a certain kind of surrender for our own unfoldment to happen in a way that we we really aren't in control of, and to um, just create the conditions that are more likely to make that possible is really the most that we can do. And this is where there's a whole teaching around wholesome desire. So our, you know, coming to the practice with really that wholesome desire for liberation, for freedom from suffering, for contact with our deeper nature, All of these things are a wholesome way of orienting toward the practice. And what we found is that, yes, the the spiritual materialism has to be dealt with in the practice, but at the same time, we're finding that the Sangha is mature enough to really take this practice as it needs to be undertaken, which is as one of purification. And if that's part of what comes up, that is part of what gets purified and that we can really come to it with a wholesome desire that is really what brings us all to practice instead of just sitting at home watching TV like, you know, 99% of the population of the world, you know? So there's a really a way of holding the practice that really is more about surrender and about um, bringing us, bringing ourselves wholeheartedly to the practice and then surrendering to the unfoldment of the ground of being, which we aren't really in control of. So I think that's enough on that. We'll take some questions now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.